Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, it has been a while. You say that, Jennifer, like people aren't allowed to take a little time off to rest and reflect and do research. Is that how you're describing it? Yeah, R, R, and R. Yeah. Well, I lost track quite a while ago of what continent you were on, what time zone you were in. Wherever there are archives, Jennifer, I'll be there, right? It's, I'm, I'm the Tom Joad of research. Um, and, and then took a little time for myself, a little gator wrestling down in the bayou uh, and uh, some po' boy consumption and, uh, and a little bit of background research for today's episode. Well, look at you, and maybe people can tell from Jack's very subtle hinting there that the, <laughs> the topic of this episode is actually New Orleans, which I'm kind of amazed that we've never done an episode on New Orleans because this really was, for many years, kind of an obsession for me. Mm-hmm. I went there a lot. I spent a lot of time time there. I made some great friends. Shout out to one in particular, parent advocate, Ashana Bagard. So, Jack... Should I ask you what you found out? Uh, no, that's we need to, you know, like uh, play music, right? Like the, the theme song to keep people listening. We want to make sure we hit our metrics just in case they check Apple checks in or whoever uh, checks in and make sure people are still listening three minutes later. Because otherwise we could be gaming the system, right? Tell mm-hmm. all our friends, just listen to the first minute and then you yeah. can delete the episode forever. I think that everyone knows that you didn't go to New Orleans. You weren't doing any archival stuff. If they could see you right the, now, the you, do, you do not have the the pallid yeah. complexion of someone who has been deep in the archives. <laughs> you have the glow of a surfer. <laughs> That's it's just Zoom, Jennifer. It's just with the it's my new filter uh, that I got. So, so yeah, no, I'm I'm excited to. Uh, to talk about this uh, and to revisit New Orleans, you know, like many years later, basically like after after the wars, right? Like for so long, the educational research community was fighting uh, over what New Orleans meant and really fighting over things like test scores, right? What did they show? What didn't they show? Um, and I think that it's it now is really a great time to step back and look at, you know, uh, from from this vantage point, um, what does the grand New Orleans reform experiment seem to have produced? How has it impacted public education uh, in in the city and the region? And what has it done to people's experiences, to um, young people's schooling, to communities, and to, you know, specifically like the thing that it was all about in the first place, um, to uh, parents' experiences trying to pick a school for their kids. (laughs) 
Now to the main event. Our special guest today is Celeste Lay. She's a professor of political science at Tulane University and the author of a new book called Public Schools, Private Governance, Education Reform, and Democracy in New Orleans. A little background. As a political scientist, she has primarily studied political behavior, things like voting behavior and public opinion. But Celeste says that her passion for education just kept calling her. From the time that I was an undergraduate and I read Jonathan Kozel's Savage Inequalities, that sort of began my interest in public education and how it affects not just our educational outcomes, but how our experiences in schools and our experiences with school systems affect us and our politics and the way that we interact more broadly with the political system and sort of what we think about politics and government. Then in 2012, Celeste found herself immersed in a more immediate education question. Where was her soon-to-be kindergartner daughter going to attend school? Seven years previously, of course, Hurricane Katrina had devastated New Orleans and ushered in a bold era of experimentation in the local schools, or something like that. Celeste says that she was aware that big changes had taken place, but that she didn't really understand what that meant. Not having had a child in the school system, it was, you know, it was kind of distant for me. And so I began the process. And at the time, the One App, which is the sort of common application that parents use now to enroll their kids in public schools in New Orleans, that was just rolling out. And it only included a fraction of the schools, even if you filled out a one app in 2012, you still had to go to school by school and fill out individual applications for other schools. And every single school had a different set of documents that it needed and requirements. And some you had to go to a meeting, some schools you had to take a test, some schools you had to agree to sort of a volunteer contract. There were all sorts of different kinds of hoops and requirements. And so Celeste did her best to meet all of those requirements. As the process went on, I just found it so onerous. And I just kept thinking, how do people without the advantages that I have in education and flexibility and transportation, you know, how are they managing and just navigating in this system? And then at the end of the day, she didn't get into any of the schools that we applied for, (laughs) including the school that Tulane has a relationship with. Staff and faculty of Tulane have an advantage at one of the highly rated elementary schools near the Tulane campus. And we applied there, but there were fewer seats than there were interested parties, more demand, less supply. And so she did not get into that school or any of the other schools that we applied. We ended up opting out of the public system altogether. I was furious because my husband and I are both products of public school systems. It was always my intention that my children would go to public schools. I see such value in a public system for a whole host of reasons. I was furious and I just kept thinking, what about all those families that can't afford to opt out, that don't have the advantages that I had in this system and and what, what they must be feeling? The experience left Celeste with a lot of questions, enough, in fact, to fill a book, which is the occasion for this episode. So she set out to learn everything she could about education reform in New Orleans, tracking policy changes back through time. And as she dug in, she encountered a story very different than the one you've likely heard, that education reform in New Orleans began with Katrina. 
That is a common narrative, particularly the elite that are involved in, in this reform movement. But a lot of sort of just regular people as well point to Katrina as the beginning of education reform. Black activists, black parents, black community members, they've been fighting about education and fighting for education for their children for, you know, more than a century. But even beyond those activists, in the decade prior to Katrina, at the state legislative level, there was just enormous change in education that allowed or made it possible for the state to come in in the wake of Katrina and do what it did in that special session, which was to seize control of the vast majority of New Orleans schools. For a full decade leading up to Katrina, legislators had enacted one measure after another that laid the groundwork for the dismantling of New Orleans' school system. New laws allowed for the creation of charter schools, overhauled school accountability and teacher certification, and most essentially, established a new entity free of democratic oversight known as a recovery school district. They just sort of chipped away at a little bit with each session. And by the time we got to 2005, when Katrina hit and there was a special session, all the state really had to do was to redefine a failing school. Louisiana had an A through F grading system and considered F a failing school, as you would expect. And then after Katrina, redefined failing as any school at the state average or lower. And so that meant all C, D, and F schools suddenly became failing schools, and they all then were transferred to the recovery school district. Without that work in the decade prior to Katrina, it would have been much more difficult in the aftermath of Katrina to do what the state did to the New Orleans school district. So, Jack, I don't know if you're aware, but this is the second episode we have done in a row where an academic was inspired to pursue a course of study because of something that happened to them in the course of their own life. And this got me thinking, like, how different the world of education policy would look if all sorts of people did that. Like, I was thinking, you know, like, what if Eric Hanushek, the sort of money doesn't matter guru, you know, like, what if he was driven to understand why little Jimmy Hanushek was in a class with 34 kids? (laughs) Right, right, right. And and then little Billy Moe came home and told Dad Terry, you know, hey, I've, I've got all of these taxi drivers who they got put out of the job by Uber, and they're now my teachers thanks to your relentless crusade against teachers' unions. Um, here's the problem, though, is they mostly read the newspaper and flick cigarette butts at me. Um, I like this. I think this is a really good idea, Jennifer. So yeah, so I was just curious about, you know, it just it just got me thinking that we've ended up with just two like really interesting books that were inspired by, you know, by by sort of personal experiences. And I wonder why we don't see more of that in education policy given that everyone has a personal connection to a school. That's a really good question, Jennifer. I think that maybe one possible answer to it has to do with the nature of doctoral programs, right? That the people who end up doing educational research almost always have come out of doctoral programs with PhDs in education, occasionally an EDD. And, you know, the training characteristically teaches you to 
Look outside of your own experience. Uh, and, and not just that, but also to do all of these things that actually make your investigations and your writing and your communication with the public um, less engaging and less interesting. Um, you know, I have often told people who said that they were really most interested in communicating with the public not to go into PhD programs because they'll be systematically trained to communicate in a way that actually alienates people um, and to study things that people aren't actually that interested in. And that that has a tremendous amount to do with um, making claims on professional expertise, right? With carving out a domain that can't also be claimed by teachers or parents or, you know, educated members of the public who also know things about schools. And that's, of course, not to say that there isn't such a thing as expertise, right? That studying education actually does matter and that there's a lot that you don't know merely by virtue of the fact that you went to school or your kids are in school or you live across the street from a school. Um, but I, I think a big part of the explanation just has to do with the nature of, um, you know, a kind of professional preparation for life as a scholar. What if we single-handedly, or I guess it would be double-handedly. That's four hands. That's many hands. We ended up reversing that because we had all these academics who are so eager to get onto the pod and they realized that their best shot is to to have their research be inspired by some personal experience. I know that I'm supposed to double down with another joke, but I will say, like, in fairness to us, that is why we have our graduate student research contest, right? Like, you know, that's that's one of the things we're trying to do is convince people that it matters to talk to the public in a way that makes sense to them, um, to talk about issues that people are actually really concerned about. And there are loads of educational researchers out there who are studying things that people really care about. And there, there are educational researchers who are studying things that people don't care about and that they should. And oftentimes it's a matter of just practicing communicating in a way that is different from how you are taught to communicate when you're writing a dissertation or, you know, a 30-page end-of-course paper. Now back to Celeste Lay. The story of what happened in New Orleans is all the more remarkable because, as Celeste often points out, sweeping policy change is next to impossible in this country. Think about issues like gun control, immigration, or climate change. But the architects of the effort to replace New Orleans public schools with charter schools overcame those unlikely odds. First, they laid the groundwork with the slow, deliberate dismantling of the public schools in New Orleans. Then they implemented rapid post-Katrina changes. And once those changes were in place, the reform architects made sure they couldn't be undone. Once we get sweeping change, there is always an impetus to push it back to the status quo because it's what people are familiar with. The most likely outcome after that kind of sweeping change is sort of an erosion of the change over time where it sort of slides back into the way things were before, the familiar. And that didn't happen here. And that was very intentional. The architects of these reforms understood that they needed to prevent that kind of backsliding. And so they wrote it into the law. That was one of the most significant things that they did when in 2005, when they changed the grades that allowed for the vast majority of schools to be taken over by the recovery school district. They also wrote into the law that those schools could not go back to the school board or could not make any governance changes for at least five years. 
But beyond that, beyond just the law, because then you would expect some schools at the five-year mark would begin to move back into a more traditional kind of governance system. And that didn't happen. And it didn't happen because there were always sort of behind-the-scenes maneuvers that the public had a really difficult time even knowing about, much less sort of following and understanding. As a political scientist, the focus of most of Celeste's work has been on political behavior, namely how voters interact with the systems around them. And one of the main objects of the transformation of New Orleans schools has been to effectively remove them from the influence of voters. Take the private, hand-selected boards that now govern nearly every aspect of K-12 education in the city. The charter boards are privately selected when a charter is authorized. Part of the authorization application is to identify who the board is going to be. And so all of those people on the initial board, when a charter is first authorized, are just hand-selected by the founder. And so they have some connection, generally, to the founder. And from there, when someone leaves the board, they're replaced by the other board members. It is a completely private process in terms of who serves on the board. I did a survey of our charter board members several years ago and also did some analysis of what I could find about who the charter board members are in terms of their race and gender and their occupation and and those sorts of things. Now, it was kind of hard to find because other than listing names, there are no requirements by the state that charters give much more information than that about their charter board members. But for the most part, the people that serve on charter boards are wealthy. They are well-educated. Very few of them have an education background. There are almost no former teachers, former school administrators. And this is very different from other places with charter schools. I reference a couple of studies out of Minnesota and D.C. and some other places where there are more educators on charter boards in other places. In New Orleans, there are very, very few an effort to make those handpicked boards more representative met with furious pushback from reform advocates. And they made what seemed like a surprising argument about why parents weren't cut out to serve on charter school boards. The Orleans Parish School Board passed a provision that would require at least one board member on every charter board to be the parent of a current student or a recent graduate or a recent graduate themselves. This was very controversial, and many of the the architects of this system wrote op-eds and had statements against it, and their reasoning was that parents can't be unbiased. If they're a parent of a current student or a parent of a recent graduate, they're just going to focus on what's best for their child and that they don't have the capacity to think more generally and more broadly about what's in the best interest of the school. That is exactly what they argue when it comes to school choice, that parents should be selecting schools strictly on the basis of what's in the best interest of their child. When it's about school choice, then that sort of individual do what's in your best interest or in your child's best interest is a good thing. But, you know, when it comes to actually serving on the board and thinking about governance, then it's like parents are too myopic. They can't possibly do this. As part of her research, Celeste surveyed charter board members about how they see their role. And what they told her was revealing about the nature of a system that now relies on private oversight. 
people were very open about sort of their contempt for parents. When I asked an open-ended question about, you know, how can parents or community members hold you accountable since your position on a charter board is not an elected position? You know, the answers to that question were, again, very telling. Basically, it's like they can't and we don't care. They don't have the capacity. They don't care enough to come to our meetings and to be involved. But then I also show that they do everything they can to reduce participation, holding meetings without any announcement that that there's going to be a meeting or where the meeting is or what time it starts, you know, holding meetings in the middle of the day when most people are, are working, holding meetings and then going immediately into executive session when they're going to do anything remotely controversial, holding meetings in private buildings that are locked that people can't get into. And that has implications beyond just whether a parent knows, say, when and where the board meeting of their child's charter school is taking place. Celeste says that a system that in many ways was set up to be impervious to parent demands ends up telegraphing to them that their voices don't matter. What I think the architects of this system really misunderstand about that is that that has real effects on not just people's engagement with the school system, people don't just give up on one system. You know, they don't just say, look, I've had a bad experience with the school system, but I'm going to keep voting and keep engaging in, in other ways. A lot of people just say, look, nobody cares what I think. I don't have any power and I'm not going to, I'm not going to bother with this. Celeste argues that by stripping democratic engagement and civic participation out of education, parents and their kids are essentially being told that they have no ability to influence schools, a message that can resonate years into the future. That's especially true when kids see this happening to their parents or when kids experience that in school themselves. There's some really interesting research by Joe Soss, who's a political science professor at uh, University of Minnesota, where he and his co-author, they've done some research on negative experiences that kids have in schools. And so these are, you know, disciplinary things like suspension and expulsion, but also sort of they look at a general attitude that the school isn't fair. And so if kids grow up in in a school and come to believe that the school isn't fair, then they are less likely years down the road to be voters and less likely to have any sense that their voice matters in the system. When we strip all of the sort of democratic participation and civic engagement out of our schools, we're robbing them of that sense of community, but we're also potentially affecting political engagement years down the road. And I just don't think the architects think about that at all. So, Jack, earlier you mentioned Terry Moe, who is really at this point kind of a recurring character on this podcast. (laughs) He is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm going to invoke his sidekick, and that would be John Chubb. Mm -hmm. Yep, Chubb and and Moe. And in many ways, Celeste's book, I think, sets up a really sort of intriguing argument between Team Chubb and Team Mo versus Jennifer, it's one team. They're on the same team. It's Team (laughs) Chubb Mo. (laughs) 
Team Chubmo and Benjamin Barber, who people may be less familiar with. He's mm-hmm. a philosopher who's thought a lot about sort of the the philosophical implications of privatization. And Jack, I'm going to read to you um, a quote from him. And and I feel like you should be playing some kind of like old Americana mm. music in the okay. background. All right. My daughter so actually you, does play the fiddle, so I could call oh, her up right if, now. Yes, that w- that would be great. <laughs> Here we go. Privatization is a kind of reverse social contract. It dissolves the bonds that tie us together into free communities and democratic republics. It puts us back in the state of nature where we possess a natural right to get whatever we can on our own, but at the same time lose any real ability to secure that to which we have a right. What we experience in the end is an environment in which the strong dominate the weak, the very dilemma which the original social contract was intended to address. So I I just found that, like that just sort of stopped me in my tracks. But what we've been hearing Celeste talk about is a vision that's really completely the opposite of that. The idea that that feet voting is all the participation that that say parents need. And I wonder if you can just articulate for folks what the vision of Team Chubmo is. Yeah. Before I do that, I just wanna like <laughs> I'm not going to clap into my microphone, but standing up and applauding uh, for that Benjamin Barber paragraph is like something we all should be doing. It's it's such a beautiful, clear response to these claims that people make about how we will all be freer and more empowered by you know a a, a world in which we are allowed to act in our own individual interests, right? To pursue our own interests as free agents in a free market. And friend of the show, Derek Gottlieb, a professor at the University of Northern Colorado, is always making the case, though in many more words than Benjamin Barber, for the importance of, uh, you know, public spaces and for us as a body politic um, and the the sort of recurring action of making uh, a world together, uh, right? He's always citing Hannah Arendt to me and uh, talking about world making and that that's something that you can't do as an individual, that you can only do as a collective, and that if you don't do it, you're exactly, as Barber said, you're in the state of nature uh, where your rights are always at risk. In fact, you have no rights, right? If nobody else recognizes those rights, those aren't rights. They're just desires, and they're often unfulfilled. And listening to you, I was thinking particularly about parents of students with disabilities. Um, you know, what happens to those kids in the state of nature when everybody is competing against each other, um, trying to outangle each other for their own self-interest, right? Those are exactly the kinds of kids who will be most poorly served. But that's not the question that you asked me to respond to. Um, I don't think I was even responding to a question. I was just making a little speech. Um, but to actually respond to your question, uh, you know, what would Team Chubmo articulate uh, as their vision of how things might work? Um, you know, go back to their book, Politics, Markets, and America's Schools. And their argument is that politics don't work, um, that markets work, that, that in a political system, the interests of parents will actually end up 
being poorly served, right? That everybody is going to get something slightly unsatisfactory to them. People are going to be trapped. They're not going to be able to make the choices that they want to make. They'll be largely um, disempowered. Their voices won't be heard. And that instead, what they need is the power to exit, right? Don't give them voice. Give them exit. And, you know, there is something to be said there about the fact that if you have no exit option, your voice really isn't as powerful as if there is the threat of potentially losing you. And I won't get into the weeds on that, other than to say that Chubb and Mo believe that ultimately voting with your feet, right, leaving is the surest way to ensure your self-interest and to promote competition in a manner that leads to schools responding to feedback from families and improving. And of course, we know it actually isn't that simple. <laughs> we know that schools and educators aren't just sitting around waiting for somebody to light a fire under them so they can start trying hard, so they can start improving. Um, we know that market pressures can actually be really corrosive to the missions of schools. But that's the idea there, uh, is that people need the power to exit. Back to Celeste and her excellent book, Public Schools, Private Governance. Now, just so you know, this is not the book for you if you're looking for something that, say, impugns the motives of education reformers or, quote-unquote, follows the money. This is a work of political science rich in data. It's also a counter-narrative to the heavily sold, heavily spun story of New Orleans as an education success story, one that depends on a very narrow set of metrics. People have been completely focused on educational outcomes and very specific educational outcomes, outcomes that are the easiest outcomes to measure, test scores, graduation rates, college going rates, what proportion of the graduating seniors are going to a two or four year college, these sorts of things. And I don't mean to say at all that those things don't matter and they're not important and that they don't measure something very important, but I don't think they're everything for sure. And I think they're very, very narrow and very limited in what they tell us. And there are examples all over the country about people gaming those systems beyond the fact that they're easy to game in many ways. Even if they're legitimate measures, they only tell us a little bit about the experience that kids have in schools, about what they've learned and what they're able to then go on and do with that knowledge. And they tell us nothing about these elements of how the system operates and who's advantaged and who's disadvantaged in the system and what the system tells us about our place and our role in our in our governmental system and our democracy. More than a decade has passed since Celeste had her first encounter with New Orleans' then newly decentralized school system, and a lot has changed. One app, the enrollment process that parents use to select schools, now includes every school in the city. But Celeste says that more fundamental things haven't changed. You know, it's still the case that the high-rated schools, you still have to take a test. Their application deadlines are different. You have to submit a supplemental application in addition to one app. And so there are still additional hurdles, even though all of the schools are now technically in one app. And so it is not the case that every family or every kid has the same chance of getting into their preferred schools as every other 
kid. Many families see certain schools as off limits. They look at the demographics of the school and they see if they're a black parent, for example, and they look at the demographics of the highly rated schools. They have more white kids and those are the only schools in which white kids in New Orleans are in. And so if things were truly done in a lottery, you would expect to see white children across all of our schools. And you just don't see that. Our white kids are in a handful of schools and outside of those, you know, half dozen schools or so, there are very few white children in most of the other schools. And that doesn't happen by accident. And so then that affects whether parents even put those schools in their rankings. Public schools' private governance is also a cautionary tale about what happens when citizens stop paying attention. At a time when privatization is on the march, Celeste says it's more important than ever that we focus on the policy arena where privatization is made possible. People need to pay attention to what happens at the state level. State politics is so important. You know, we're seeing this now with guns and abortion and all sorts of policies. Those are state level policies. Education, criminal justice, the really important work is done at our state levels. And we tend to be very focused on national politics as a country. We need to pay attention to what these state legislators are saying and what they're doing and listen to the people with expertise. Listen to teachers and school principals and other administrators. I mean, they shouldn't be the only people in the room, but they should be there. You know, the governor of Louisiana that was elected in the mid-90s that came in and, and began to lead a lot of these incremental measures that led to the sweeping change, you know, he was very explicit from the beginning that his transition team did not, and on education, did not include any teachers' union or school board officials. Like, anybody involved in those organizations were not included. You know, that sent the message very early on. They were going to be outside of power in terms of his administration. For many of the architects of the system, that was a good thing. Celeste also challenges us not to forget the broader purposes of schools and their connection to democracy, something that couldn't be more urgent right now. I would just say for people who understand the importance of public schools to our democracy and to the school experience, schools aren't just test scores. And it's not just that we want kids to be well-rounded. That's true. You know, we want kids, I think, in the old days, you know, we saw schools as socialization institutions. So we want them to learn to be good citizens. And good citizens include participatory citizens, citizens who believe their, their participation, their voice matters. They're going to see that either their voice does matter or their parents' voice matters or it doesn't. You know, people who understand this aspect of public education just need to be really vigilant all along the way about what's happening at the state level, what's happening at the local level, and participate. Because by the time they get to the crisis, whether it's a natural disaster or an economic crisis, oftentimes it's too late to do anything at that point. It's too late to completely stop it. You can do something. I don't mean to be that pessimistic to do something about really stopping it. You kind of have to be vigilant all along the way. And I say that's true about everything, not just public education, all of these issues that are state-level issues. We overlook state government at our peril, I think, as citizens. 
That was Celeste Lay, author of a terrific new book, Public Schools, Private Governance, Education Reform, and Democracy in New Orleans. Definitely check it out. And Jack and I will be right back to talk about the theory of change that animates so many reform efforts and is looking a bit wobbly right now. And we'll be revealing the topic of this episode's In the Weeds segment for our Patreon subscribers. Here's a hint. You know how Jack is always trying to convince us that the story of public education is one of steady progress over time? What if it turns out that he was right? Can you imagine how intolerable he'll be? If this intrigues you, just head over to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and become a supporter. So, Jack, as I was reading Celeste's book and I had the opportunity to interview her, you know, I I kept thinking about, you know, sort of like what vision for schools would parents and communities put forward if they had the chance? And one of the reasons that I was thinking about this is because there's been this whole flurry of stories about declining enrollment, particularly in urban areas. Some of this has to do with pandemic, but some of it also just has to do with the fact that there are fewer kids. You and I actually addressed this in our book, A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, that, you know, how much of the vision for urban education reform was, you know, that you would just keep opening new schools and closing the low performers, a vision that it turns out that parents hate. But it also requires a steady supply of more kids. And now all of a sudden, that is running out. And so you are going to be seeing in city after city, including in New Orleans, you know, having to go through these very wrenching decisions about what schools should be closed. And I think in in places where that decision-making has basically been removed from the democratic realm, you're going to really, like, you're going to see backlash, but also profound disempowerment that's going to have real implications. Yeah, yeah, I think that... um the the theory of change that uh, was underneath probably the last quarter century of educational reform assumed that enrollments would at the very least stay steady, um, if not expanding, right? And so, as you said, you not only could open more schools, but um, you didn't have to worry about things like um, you know having to suddenly fire lots of teachers, not not because they were low value added teachers to use Arnie Duncan's language, but because actually um, you know there there weren't enough students in the school anymore to justify having that many educators. Uh, so you know so many reforms really were rooted in in that assumption. And I think that we're going to have to wrestle with lots of difficult questions. And it's really worth people just being aware um, that as we see declining enrollments, we're going to have to have difficult conversations about, you know, what what happens to teachers? Um, you know, who loses their jobs? Um, what happens to class sizes, right? Where are we going to draw the line on those? which schools get closed down and who's going to have a voice in determining that it's worth paying attention to. I don't know exactly how it'll shake out, but I do know that um, there are definitely policy elites who are prepared for this, right? They have their slate of policy proposals that they're ready to use this crisis as an opportunity to push through. I know for-profit micro schools. (laughs) 
That's always your answer, Jennifer. <laughs> it makes me feel like you were an early stage investor, an angel investor. I was. I, I have. I have some friend of stock. So, Jack, I don't know if you've ever actually listened to the podcast, but to before, our podcast, yes, I listen to every episode. I just well, don't. So we, I can't listen to the Patreon because I'm not a Patreon member, and you won't let me have that. No, you can't have that. But so then you know that that at the after when I say goodbye to the guest, then uh-huh. I always preview. I give people a little hint about what our Patreon topic is going to be, and I know people are just they're on the edge <laughs> of their seats right now because I said I said something like you know what if everything you've heard about the state of our public schools for the last you know fifty years turns out to be wrong, and that meant. That Jack Schneider had been right all along, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and and nobody was surprised when they heard that. They were like, "Yeah, I think that sounds about right." And that they thought to themselves, <laughs> "Well, I I I've got to know more." So that, in fact, is what we are going to be discussing in the special area that we call in the weeds. We rely on your support through Patreon, and if you go to Patreon.com/slash Have You Heard Podcast, you'll see a list of all the extras you can get just by throwing a few dollars our way each month. You can get a special reading list and lots of good stuff on this one. And you can accompany us into the weeds. And that's where we talk about how Jack was right all along. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I can't wait. Uh, and for those with kids at home, uh, you can join at the uh, the platinum level to get your kids access to Have You Heard Junior. And the core feature of that is Jack and Jenny's Clubhouse. And what we, yeah, yeah, I I was saving this one for you, Jennifer. Yep. And uh, and I've got the whole, we're doing a skit in the first one where we're in kindergarten together. Um, So if you want to hear that and you want to listen as a family, um, then you can join the Patreon at the, the Platinum Plus level. Everybody else, remember lots of ways to support the show uh, without spending your hard-earned Ethereum. So uh, tweet about the show, tag at Have You Heard Pod, so we can see you doing that. Um, share the latest episode or your favorite episode with somebody who you think may gasp not be listening to the show on a regular basis. Make sure that you download uh, the show. Even if you don't always listen to it, I think that just have, I know Jennifer's making like she's horrified by that, but even if you don't, I think just the fact that it automatically downloads to your device helps make us more visible, helps our our stats. Uh, And then of course, go on and give us a rating. Jennifer likes five-star ratings. She really, she just cued into the the quantitative component, but I'm more of a, a qualitative person in this regard. I really love reading those. Uh, so um, thanks for uh, all of your various forms of support, whether they come with coin or not. Well, Jack, I have to say that I was a little worried that after you were very extended academic vacations... Excuse me, and, research projects. And all the different continents you've been on, the many time zones that you might be you know, a little bit slow on the uptake and what you might not have a funny gag at the end of the show. <laughs> like it might be lost along with your baggage. Uh-huh. I didn't need to worry, did I? You did not. Jennifer, I always bring my A-game to the pod. On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. 